All right, well, I'm going to just briefly, uh, we stopped midway last week, and as I said for maybe somebody that came in, you do not need, if you were here last week, I'm using the same outline as I didn't finish, and uh, so if you weren't, then I made some extras back there. Did everybody get one that wanted one uh, tonight? Okay. And uh, so I'm going to just briefly uh, look at uh, the first, I think we went through uh, the f- number four, but uh, as I've been saying, and it's interesting that we're still in the first three, four verses of the book of Hebrews. Now, uh, next week, we're going to take on a really big chunk. I'm a, we'll finish chapter one talking about the, uh, the uh, supremacy of Jesus over angels, and that's kind of the next thing because the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, one of the key words is uh, throughout the book of Hebrews is better, supreme. In other words, what he's doing is he is exalting how Jesus is, uh, is beyond, he's writing to uh, Christian Jew, Jews who have become Christians. They've uh, come into the faith of, of Christianity. And in a nutshell, there was discouragement uh, for them to continue following Christ. Uh, that uh, perhaps they were facing uh, persecution, rejection. More than likely, this was kind of a second generation of believers. Uh, maybe, um, you know, the, the letter we folks guesstimate was written um, roughly around the year 60, 65. And that's helpful because the temple in the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70, okay? So, and if Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, roughly in the year 33, you've got a second generation who are in the church and who have come into faith now uh, since that first generation of believers. And, you know, the temple is still standing, the Jewish uh, rituals, the Jewish uh, uh, priestly system, the sacrifice, all those things remain. And, uh, you know, most of the early believers uh, they they recognized and knew that Jesus was going to come again, but they you know they believe I guess like every generation of believers we have an anticipation that it could be in our lifetime. Well, they really had that sense, but here now many of those first generation of believers that were there when uh, Christ was a you know uh, walking the earth, earthly ministry, and now you know twenty five thirty years have passed and. Uh, their children now are coming up in the church and beginning to wonder, wow, is this really worth it? I mean, you know, the temp- as I said, the temple and all the apparatus of the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion is still there, even though uh, that uh, old covenant system, they know that that was now in the past, that Jesus has come to establish a new covenant, but they're thinking, you know, is it really worth me losing job, family? I mean... You know, all this stuff is still, and maybe I made the wrong choice, whatever. So the writer of Hebrews that um, uh, we're not sure who wrote it. Now, we know the Holy Spirit inspired it, but uh, we're not exactly sure. Uh, There's always strong argument that it was Paul. Uh, Some suggested uh, Apollos, remember him in the book of Acts? Uh, And uh, some suggested even Luke, that this was kind of a trilogy of Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, he wrote the book of Acts, and the book of Hebrews. Uh, so, like I said, we're not sure. Uh, I think there's kind of strong leaning towards Paul, but, you know, don't go out and start a church over that. The point is, 
is that it obviously met the criteria of authenticity uh, that those that determine what books would be authentic, it met the criteria of apostolic origin and authenticity historically of witnesses to Christ. So it met that criteria, and I think we can certainly have confidence in that. So we've looked uh, when we began, and I'm just going to read since we're still basically in the first few verses. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Long ago, Hebrews 1, hope you got your, your Bibles, because that's what we're doing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, God spoke, and we spent some time just that fact, that and many times and many ways, that's kind of a shorthand version of talking about the different ways uh, that we would say Old Testament that God spoke uh, in the Old Testament, prophets, and there were situations where he spoke in dreams. Uh, he gave Moses a burning bush. He gave the law and, and uh, spoke to Moses on the mountaintop, and he spoke in uh, various ways to the prophets. But So that's kind of just in that little nutshell, many times in many ways. But now, the emphasis is now, God spoke, uh, or, or in the past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that's just kind of that emphasis in that Jesus Christ is the apex, the culmination of the revelation of God. That even though he spoke in various ways in the past, that he spoke through all sorts of different means, that in these last days, there's a finality of God speaking. You're not going to get... Uh, more revelation. You're not going to get any higher. Uh, you know, all those in the past in the Old Covenant under the Old Testament, they were messengers of God. But Jesus was not only a messenger of God, he was the message. So you're not going to top, you're right? So, in, so there's a finality just in those first uh, two or three verses there. And so it says, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, what we did last week is we looked at the first, uh, on your uh, outline, we looked at the first uh, four, and I'm just going to kind of run through those, and we're putting these online, so if you miss a week, uh, you, can, you can go back and listen, and I try to put the outline with uh, each of the uh, messages on there as well, so if you uh, know how to get that PDF, it's right there attached on the website. Um, let me see if there's anything else I need. I have these broken down because one of the, the emphasis here uh, and the pattern in the Old Testament was there was three primary offices that in these various times and various ways that God spoke, and those primary offices, what I mean by offices, roles, uh, was prophet, what's the next one? Priest and king. And Jesus, even though those were, there were prototypes uh, you had some prophets, right? Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You had lots of prophets. Uh, you had priests. Uh, we certainly remember Aaron. He was kind of the, the, the big one. But there were certainly lots of Levitical priests, and they were in charge of the, the temple and the sacrificial system and, that, and, uh, and all that. So there was lots of uh, human priests. And then we had some kings. Uh, you had some good kings, but Seemed like most of them were a bunch of scoundrels, weren't they? I mean, certainly we uh, we know about Saul. He was the one that 
You know, they wanted a king. Remember, nation of Israel, they had Samuel the prophet, and they went to Samuel and said, hey, we don't like being the odd guys in the neighborhood. We want a king like everybody else. We want a king like all the other nations. And Samuel, you remember, he took that personally, and he went before the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And so, you know, sometimes God will give you what you want. Have you learned that the hard way? Uh, And sometimes what you want isn't always, but he gave them and blessed and anointed Saul. Well, you know how that worked out. But God had a man after his own heart, and his name was David. And David had Solomon. And then you have the, the... all the kings that followed after Solomon, because remember, Israel split in two with two of Solomon's sons, and it split in two, and then uh, between Judah, which was the southern part uh, where Jerusalem was, and then you had the northern part, and that's referred to as Israel. A little confusing, it's all but Judah in the northern kingdom, Israel, and you had a role of good kings, bad kings, and Israel had mostly all If I remember right, I think all their kings were bad, the northern kingdom. But uh, the southern kingdom had a mixture. But all that being said, the one problem with all... Now, that's the same outline as last week. So if you had last week's, you're in good shape. Um, that, uh, That as wonderful as the good prophets and the priests and some of the good kings, but the problem is they were all human. They were all flawed. They were all... uh, at their best, sinners, would you say? Politicians, yeah. I mean, um, but while they were prototypes, okay, Jesus fulfilled those three roles, offices, if you will, perfectly. He was a perfect prophet. He was a perfect priest. Hebrews talks about him being our high priest and certainly uh, king. And those are three things that are certainly Fulfilled. So you see the way that this is, these, um, these adulations, if you will, these statements of attributes that follow in uh, the latter part of verse 2 and 3 that uh, you'll see that these, I've kind of broken these down along that, uh, and that's, that's kind of, that's an artificial outline. It didn't say that in the Bible, but, um, but I think that's uh, helpful in remembering those three roles. So last week we looked at Number one, and where it says in the, in the beginning of verse two, it says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, and here's number one, whom he appointed the heir of all things, that Jesus is the heir of all things. And that is a title of honor. It's a title of honor that uh, Jesus is the, um, the one who has, that all that the Father has given to him, he has received. And so these are, these are titles of demonstrating the supremacy of who Jesus is. And if you remember, as I, as I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, the writer of Hebrews' long, long discussion is showing how much greater and supreme Jesus is as compared to the old system, the old covenant. So Jesus himself Uh, Unlike, there was no prophet, there was no priest, there was no king that was called an heir of all these things. Um, There was no other sons, that no other sons, there's only one heir. uh, And Jesus, uh, in this title, is given that title there. Uh, Secondly, 
And again, these we drew out a little more than we're doing tonight. Secondly, Jesus, uh, on your outline that we looked at last week, Jesus is supreme as the creator of all things. And we spent a little time in this where it says that uh, not only is he the heir of all things, but the latter part of verse 2, it says, through whom also he created the world, that he made the world. And we looked at uh, scriptures like in Colossians 1.6 that s- speak about through him, Christ, uh, God created the, the earth. That uh, it really speaks of Jesus's deity because God is attributed as the creator. So again, this title addressing the supremacy of Christ says that Jesus is supreme because he's the creator of all things through whom also he made the world. Jesus is Lord over time. He created time. He's not bound by time. He is the creator. Um, and uh, so, again, we spent some time about with that as creator. Thirdly, this gets into some things that reveal Jesus as prophet, the prophet. He is the ultimate revealer of God. And so the next one in verse 3 It says that he, the third item, is that he is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is supreme as the radiance of the Father's glory. And we talked a little bit about uh, different pictures of the glory of God that we see in Scripture. We talked about, remember, when Moses came down off the mountaintop, uh, the Bible says that his face did what? shined uh, at being in the presence of God. The Bible talks about the Shekinah glory of God. Um, Gave an example of this uh, radiance of the Father's glory. Remember Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration? um, And that's mentioned in all three Gospels. And you had uh, the two prophets, Moses and Elijah, and the disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, saw Jesus in all his glory, we could say it like this, that was really the, the, the time that um, uh, before the resurrection, they saw Jesus in his, if I could say it this way, his godness as God. They saw that glory. And you remember the conversation you, you know, they heard between a Moses and Elijah, and they were speaking with Jesus, and Peter got excited and wanted to build a an altar or a monument or a pillar or whatever it is to, to all three of them. And in the midst, I forget which of the gospel writers you have this, but there's one of them that Jesus, I mean, that Peter, in the middle while he was making this great suggestion, uh, the voice of the Father interrupted him and said, This is my son, hear him. And that's exactly what Hebrews 1 1 is saying, that he is my final word, he is the ultimate. Uh, expression, revelation uh, of me. Uh, It's not Moses. Moses was a great prophet, but he was flawed. It wasn't, uh, uh, did I say Ezekiel? Elijah was the one up there. Did I say Ezekiel? I misspoke. Elijah is who I met if I misspoke. But Moses and Elijah, uh, Elijah, you know, just symbolic of Moses, symbolic of the law, Elijah, symbolic of the the prophets, kind of the chief of the prophets, if you will. He doesn't have that title. but So really you have the Old Testament represented with Moses and Elijah all affirming Jesus at that Mount of Transfiguration. But they saw Jesus 
in his glory as God. Uh, I think I have the scripture in your outline under number three. Yes, uh, the scripture, I love this, in Revelation uh, 21, another picture of this glory. And by the way, something I mentioned that's important to keep in mind, Jesus didn't just reflect the glory of God. He emanated the glory of God. Why? Because he was God of very God. Okay? Uh, we might reflect the light of Jesus in, in a figurative sense, but Jesus himself as God and the scripture that I have there in Revelation 21 in your outline, uh, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city, verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So this title of supremacy uh, of, of Jesus, uh, that he is the supreme uh, that he is supreme as he is the radiance of the Father's glory. And the last one we looked at last week was number four, and that is in the beginning of uh, verse, uh, or that is in the latter part of verse three, or in the middle of verse three. He's the radiance of the glory of God, and the ESV says he is the exact imprint of his nature. And that word imprint uh, in the Greek is the word Character. Character. When I mean by character, I don't mean that Pastor Tim, he's a real character. I don't mean that kind of character or uh, so-and-so is really a man of good character. I'm talking about character that is perhaps another word you could say is the exact imprint, the exact stamp. Uh, some of you that remember typewriters, you know that little, uh, that little metal arm that would, when you typed the T, and it would, it would make that imprint on the paper. Or, you know, you see uh, movies with kings, and they would have their kingly ring, and they would have the wax, you know, on the document, and they would put their imprint, a character, uh, on that seal. You might uh, uh, have coins in your pocket, and they have a character on that coin. So the point is, is that Jesus is the exact imprint, uh, the exact um, stamp, if you will, of the Father. And you remember he, uh, when uh, uh, Philip said, you know, Jesus, I have a burning question. I, I want to just ask you, uh, show us the Father. If you, just, if you just do that, we won't ask anything ever again, right? That's birthday, Christmas, Hanukkah, Bar Mitzvah, that's the whole thing. If you just do that, I won't ever, and Jesus said what? Have I been with you? Have I been with you this long that if you've seen me? Yeah, you still don't know. You know. He says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, don't confuse. It's not saying, you know, when we talk about the Trinity, it's not saying Jesus is the Father and the Father is Jesus. It's saying that, uh, that, that when he said the Father and I are one, Three, the Trinity is three distinct persons, but one in their deity, okay? Um, and, uh, you know, that is a mystery, just like Jesus being perfectly God and perfectly man. 
right? But that's the testimony of Scripture. Um, and so Jesus is that exact representation. He is the exact, the literal Greek word there for imprint is character, or uh, in the Greek it's the word, if it's anglicized, it's the word character, but just giving that emphasis of that Jesus, you see him, uh, and you see the Father manifested. Okay. All right, look at number five. That Jesus is supreme as the sustainer, as the sustainer of all things by the word of his power. Okay, look at verse three. I'm just going to read the whole thing again. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint, the character, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This speaks that uh, this speaks to uh, that Jesus is the governing power, if you will, behind all things. Uh, that it speaks, it refers to the sustaining providence of God in all things, that Jesus sustains all things. Uh, look in your Bibles to Colossians uh, chapter 1. Look at Colossians chapter 1, hang a left, and you'll hit Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> and uh, I, w I should have read this earlier with the latter one, that the last one we covered. I did last week, but I'm going to uh, pick it up and read it. Read uh, chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, okay? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. And this is Paul speaking about the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus, all right? So verse 15, Colossians 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. All right, we see that language again. The firstborn of all creation. Now, you know, we talked about firstborn is a title of honor. Jehovah's Witnesses want to make a big deal out of it in saying, see, uh, see here, Jesus is the first created one. And that's just not what that means. Uh, and if they would just read the next verse, it wouldn't make sense because he can't be the first one created because verse 16 says what? He's the one who's cre the creator, all right? So by him, verse 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Don't miss that for him, uh, because that, go, that gives us a little insight into the future of this kingdom that... The Father is put into the Son's hands and the glory to Christ. And, uh, but verse 17, here's what we want to see in light of Jesus being the sustainer of all things. Verse 17, And He, Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things what hold together. What's holding you together from going crazy some days? Right there. Right there. Now, beyond that, what holds the atoms and the molecules and 
this table and the chair and all these things in our material world that exist. Well, he holds all things together. Um, he sustains all things. And more than that, more, not only is he, in a sense, uh, managing, if you will, but he is also, by his sustaining power, uh, he is the one who is purposely, actively directing all things together. Romans 8.28 says, For God works all things together, right, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The providential activity of the Son who is holding all things together, who is actively moving all things. Remember, we talked a little bit about this on Sunday mornings, about history. History. I don't mean your history class in high school, but history uh, in, in kind of a long picture that there's different ways people look at history. If you talk to a person who um, is a, uh, you know, an atheist or agnostic and sees natural selection or evolution, they see history as just kind of an unfolding of random events, right? Just random things, which is kind of interesting that randomness produces order. That didn't even, that's not even logical, but you have to do that somewhere. So if you're not sure how something came into being, just throw in a few billion years and by golly, that salamander's going to get up on that pond, out of that pond and grow him some legs and start writing books. Somehow, he had all, you know, somehow that's going to happen, right? Um, you have that. Then you have uh, more of the Eastern way of thinking, uh, Hinduism and some of the Eastern religions that would teach uh, maybe reincarnation that see history as cyclical. You know, I always hate hearing Christians say, oh, that's bad karma. We don't have karma, all right? We don't have karma. We have providential activity of God. Karma meaning that if you did bad in this life, you know, and you really were a rotten scoundrel, uh, you'll just kind of get recycled back into the mix, and you'll maybe be born as a cockroach, as a, a maggot or a slug or something like that. And then if you're a good maggot and you're a good slug... You might graduate and be a, a goat next time around. And sooner or later, you'll work your way back up to be a human and be depraved, and you'll be back on the, the maggot and the cockroach list. You know, because that's the way they just see that just everything is cyclical. That is not a biblical view, right? That the unfolding of history is God's providential direction and hand in all things, that history, his story, God is moving all things together forward for his sovereign hand and purpose and for his glory, all right? So history is not just chaos. History is moving at the sovereign hand and all these things, Russia and the Ukraine, what, you know, God is sustaining not just our lives, but he's sustaining the affairs of this world. And he is moving, whether we understand it or not, he's moving all things forward to culminate to his purpose and his glory. So here, in this fifth statement of the supremacy of Jesus, that he is the sustainer of all things. Purposeful control. He is continually 
upholding all things in the universe by the word of his power. In the beginning, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created, and the earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. By the word of His power, the creative word of His power. Now, there's some you know, false teaching that would have you uh, believe that human beings have a similar creative ability as God, that we can speak things by faith into existence, um, and that certainly is not what's being taught here. But our words do matter, right? Life and death is in the power of the tongue, but we can't like speak ex nihilo. That's Latin for uh, that when God created, you know, I always amused when you hear something, maybe scientists, and they created life in the laboratory. They didn't create life in the laboratory. They used pre-existing matter. And, but when God created, ex nihilo is the Latin term that means from nothing, he created from nothing. He wasn't using already made materials and to make something. He spoke and it came into existence. Well, not only is he able um, to speak things into existence, and you may have heard of a, uh, this view or this uh, Christian, uh, really not Christian, but uh, religious view called deism, D-E-I-S-M. A lot of our... Um, not all of them, but a lot of our founding fathers in America were what are, were referred to as deists, like Franklin, uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin, let's try to say Franklin Roosevelt, but I don't think he was alive yet. Uh, but Benjamin Franklin, uh, others, Thomas Jefferson, I mean, they were, they were deists, and here's kind of a, a, a way to remember it, is they acknowledged a creator, okay? They didn't deny a creator, but they really denied any active involvement that God, whoever he is, uh, created, but he has chosen to allow things to work through natural laws of creation. He's not actively involved in creation, our lives. He's just kind of like wound up the clock and he's gone on vacation somewhere, right? So that's a deist. So they weren't full-blown atheists, but they just didn't see God. They saw the way that things work is through natural laws and science, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, that's not a Christian view. A Christian view sees God who is actively involved in all things, in all matters. The Bible says he puts kings in authority, and he does what? And he brings them down. Guess what? He put Mr. Putin where he is at. Mr. Vladimir Putin. Putin. I call him Putins. Um, he's there by the providence of God. You know, all this stuff that goes on doesn't catch God by surprise. How many times have I said God doesn't learn anything? Oh my goodness. Why didn't I see that coming? I better do this. I better. No. He is the sustainer of all things. That should be of great comfort to your life. 
That means your bodies and your health. He's sustaining you. Steve, he sustained you a few weeks back when it could have been you that got killed on that highway. God is the sustainer of all things. In him, all things hold together. Just think with me how, not to keep this in the lofty theological realm, but how would our lives look differently if we really begin to understand in addition to Jesus being our Savior, who has saved us and delivered us from sin, but He's also the sovereign King over everything. You know, I talk a lot about the sovereignty of God because I can't think of any more greater truth that is comforting to my life than to just know that God is in charge of my life. That's not a statement for a coffee mug or somebody to knit something and put it in the kitchen table. That means that God... What man meant for evil, as Joseph would say at the end of Genesis. God intended, God meant for good. Peter, Acts 2, when he was preaching that sermon, and he said, this Jesus, who was predetermined, (laughs) given by God, was crucified by the hands of evil men. Yeah, God predetermined that he would be the lamb, the sacrifice, but he used the hands of evil men, to bring about what God had providentially already determined. I don't know about you, but uh, I remember J.I. Packer in his uh, little book on, um, I think it's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful book called Knowing God. That's an excellent book. But he wrote this book called Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God, really trying to... uh, you know, answer the question like, well, if God knows everything, why share the gospel? Why pray? You know, what's the point? And, uh, and as, he was, as he begins the book, he's talking about the sovereignty of God. And he says, every time a Christian, whether they understand the theological ramifications or not, every time a believer gets on their knees to pray, they are acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Think about that statement. Because if you didn't believe that God could do something, why pray? Listen, that's more comforting. If I didn't believe that God could intervene and bring change into a situation, that he could bring healing into somebody's life, that he could that he can make a rotten situation in my family and turn it for good, that he could protect my child from this bad influence, whatever it is, if I didn't believe God could actually hear and 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 hear my prayer. And believe that he has the ability. So not only can he create, as we saw earlier, not only can he speak things into his existence, but he can control what he creates. And that's, a, to me, of great comfort. And I say, how would it be if we really, really took that to heart? We might be more prayerful. You see, a greater vision of God, if it makes you less prayerful, you're, you're, you've got a vision of the wrong God. It should draw you more into communion and relationship and spending time in the Word and prayer and worship. It should make you more prayerful. It should make you less anxious because you're really entrusting all things 
into the one who sustains all things. Instead of just being words that we say. Jesus is not going to lose his inheritance given to him by the Father. Remember he said that all that the Father has put into my hands, they will stay in my hands. All that the Why? Because he is the sustainer. Look at number six. Another wonderful. This now, these last two, just as far as kind of a general, uh, speak to Jesus as our priest, as priest, the ultimate savior. He's the ultimate uh, prophet. He's the ultimate king. And now these latter two speak of Jesus as the ultimate savior. Jesus is supreme as the one who made purification for our sins, all right? Um, Maybe that's why I'm not reading it right, because I'm in Colossians still. I thought, what in the world did... All right, here we go. Upholds the universe by the word of his power, in the latter part here, or or, uh, in the middle of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Let's just take the first part of that, and then we'll look at the second part. After making purification for sins. This is uh, the one who upholds things by the word of his power. This is the one who um, became, as Philippians 2 says, that even though he was God, a very God, he condescended and took the form of a servant, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, and became obedient even to death, death on the cross, to purify us from our sins. Philippians 2. Let's look at that. I should have turned to that. Look over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Again, very Christ-exalting. Verse 5, Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, and he's talking about humility and uh, the humility of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who through who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human forms, talking about the incarnation, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so Jesus Christ, uh, and it speaks about his, His incarnation, and it was only because the depth of our sin, of the sins of Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel and all those were inadequate, but it was only through the incarnation, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God that could take away sins, that God did what we could not do. In fact, while we're on that thought, keep going left a little bit, 
to Romans chapter 3. Uh, pivotal few verses here in Romans chapter 3. And we'll pick it up at verse 21. Romans chapter 3, talking about the cross, because that's what this uh, supremacy title is doing now. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, because the law was inadequate, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now look at, pay attention to the language here, verse 25. Uh, through, that is, in Christ Jesus, he's talking about Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation uh, the New King James ESV, your NIV might say, sacrifice of atonement. Propitiation is an old word, but it's a very pointed word that connects back to the Old Testament. That he was put forward as a propitiation. Remember, a propitiation, a sacrifice that propitiated was a sacrifice that was made that satisfied the wrath of God. That, that's a picture of the Old Testament, the, uh, the sacrifice the Day of Atonement, that it was a, it propitiated, uh, that our sins were pitched on this sacrifice and it satisfied the justice of God or the wrath of God. So God, who, who put forward Christ? Who, you could say, who crucified Jesus? Well, it says right here, God the Father did, verse 25, that he put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to, receive, to be received by faith, and this, talking about the cross, this was to show God's righteousness. You want to see the holiness of God? Look at the cross. You want to see the severity of sin and what it took to pay our sins was nothing less than the very Son of God. This was to show the cross, the sacrifice of Christ, God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. The Old Testament covenant only could cover sins. It could never take away sins. It was to show the cross, his righteousness at the present time. And here's the key, the latter part of verse 26. He did this so that he, God, might be just. That means he's operating in conformity to his character, his holiness, his righteousness. And at the same time, he is the one who is the justifier, the one who makes and brings justice of the one who has faith in Jesus. How could God be true to his character, true to his holiness, without violence? We say, well, you know, hey, what's the big deal? Why couldn't God just kind of, you know, just like, hey, we forgive people all the time? Why couldn't God just do that? Well, I think that shows that we don't grasp the depth of the depravity of, of, our hum, of humanity, for one, and the depth and, and radicalness of our sin that separates us from God. So in God's genius, if you will, how could God remain holy and righteous, not violate His character, 
Because the law demands, the law is a reflection of his character. The law demands that all who sin must die. He can't just set change, you know, he just, because he's bound, that law is part of his character. But how can he be just, consistent, and yet at the same time bring those violators of the law, bring those enemies of himself, how is he able to make them now righteous or fit for heaven? How is that going to happen? Well, he became man. And he became the Lamb of God. That he himself became the sacrifice. God remained just and the justifier. So, going back to Hebrews, this Jesus is the one who made purification for our sins. Let me uh, expand on this a little bit because this, uh, this gets in to that third office, if you will, that Jesus functioned, fulfilled the office of priest. High priest, okay? Uh, the word or the term there in Hebrews, uh, the end of or the middle of chapter 3, that, he, that after that he, making purification for sins, that that is speaking about Jesus' high priestly role. You know the comparison, and we'll get into this later when, we com- when he compares the earthly priest, because that's one of the things the writer of Hebrews is doing, is showing the supremacy of Jesus as the final word. He's, the final, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the angels, and he's greater than the earthly priest, because he is the high priest. He is. All those priests in the Old Testament, they were only mediate, they were mediators of the sacrifices that could only temporarily cover, if you will, sin. It didn't, they didn't, it didn't purify or take anything away. In fact, those priests, they themselves had to offer a sacrifice for their own self because of their sin. But Jesus, as our high priest, didn't have to do that. In fact, the Bible, we'll see, remember in Hebrews, we won't turn to it, speaks about this high priest made a sacrifice for sin once and for all. Now, we know that isn't for all people, because then that means all people would be redeemed. He's saying for all, that he's made a sacrifice of sin for all Time. That means there is no further need of a continual sacrificial system. That's why the old system has been done away with because Jesus finished it. Jesus completed it. Jesus, as we'll see later, um, sat down as a completed act. And so this word in the uh, Greek that is translated purification... Um, how many, does anybody's Bible use the word cleansing? Is anybody even looking at their Bible, huh? Is anybody, who, everybody has purification? Okay, cleansing um, might be another, is another legitimate, a cleansing, purification. 
Uh, what's interesting is this, this purification has a very specific connection to the Hebrew uh, word that it um, was uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that the, there's an Old Testament word that accompanies it. And the word purification or cleansing is a word that is uh, in the Hebrew is used, and it specifically addresses the process by which a person, because uh, you know in the book of Leviticus, there's many different ways a person can be ceremonial, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, right? Leper, a woman menstruating is unclean during that period of time, um, after childbirth for a, a period of time. So, so this word purification is a word that is specifically speaking that what Jesus did, don't miss this, that he, was, he, was the, he, was, he purified us from our sins, that we who were unclean, unfit, for the presence of God, Jesus has made cleansing for us. He has purified us. You with me? That's what this term that as the high priest would ceremonially make temporary purification, uh, and certainly the Day of Atonement was the climax of the law of purification, Jesus himself and by himself has removed and made us clean before God. Now, the application could be, you'd say, well, you, you really, one of the things that maybe a person struggles with is maybe my background, and I don't feel clean. There's things that I'm ashamed of. Well, the Bible says that this Jesus has purified you. This Jesus has removed your sin. He has removed that barrier that was an impediment between you and a perfect relationship with your Creator. Jesus is supreme because He's the only one that could do that. We're going to take just a few moments here. Look at, let's look at a few scriptures uh, in our Bibles. Look over to, uh, and we'll work our way, uh, look over to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. You'll see how this same word is used in different references here. Ephesians 5, verse 25 and 27. Familiar passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, talking about the church, having what? Cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So we see that, we, that the work of Christ, this cleansing, this purification, we see that there. Look over to Titus 2.14, which is uh, right there, right after Timothy. Thessalonians, Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. 
speaking about Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to what? Purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Look over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and let's read verse 8 and 9. Verse 8, 2 Peter 1, verse 8. For if these qualities, what he just spoke of above, are yours and are increasing to keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these, quali- whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And the last that we'll look at is from 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 7. For if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, remember, this is written to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Christ has for all time cleansed us. The blood of Christ continues to cleanse us. And the blood of Christ will ultimately cleanse us of all sin. So, what a Savior Jesus is Charles Wesley, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The supremacy of the one who made purification for our sins. And the last, and these really kind of flow in tandem, don't they? Back at Hebrews chapter 1, the last one, it says that after after making purifications for sin... After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that signify? That signifies when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. That sitting down pitch figuratively is demonstrating the completion of of the work of redemption. You're not adding to it. You're not modifying it. You're not. It's complete. When he sat down. It is finished. And so as the writer of Hebrews. Um, <laughs> that as he took that seat. In that authority. And that position. And uses the highest language. That's why we could say in Hebrews, or the writer of Hebrews could tell us 
in Hebrews 4.16 that we can, go, we can come before him with confidence. Remember Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need because Jesus again has finished and completed the work of redemption. Now don't miss that from the bigger picture of the theme of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is writing Jewish Christians or even superficial Christians that are maybe they're not true believers, but nevertheless, they were being tempted. They were under persecution. They were under hardship because now they were identifying with Christ and it's brought nothing but trouble. And they were looking to go back. And so if you just look at these seven before, I mean, we're not even out of verse 3. And we've been doing this for four weeks. What? Job security. Pregnant with wonderful, wonderful truth. That's why I never understand people say, I can't, I read the Bible and I don't get much out of it. My goodness, you can't even get out of the third verse with so much if you will stop, linger, pause, pray, think, read, pray, think, read. You don't have to come up with some new revelation. You just need to let the revelation in Christ And it speaks so fully and so wonderfully. You see, the sacrificial system that God instituted was temporary. All it was, if I could say it this way, without being in any way disrespectful, it was a preview of coming attractions. It wasn't the attraction. Now, I know sometimes we watch trailers of movies and they're better than the movie, right? No. The real thing is better than the preview. And every time those priests, imagine the billions of gallons of animal blood that flowed. I mean, if you ever want to do, do look at something interesting, look at the, the sewerage system in the temple, especially around the altars. Massive. And yet, none of it, none of it couldn't accomplish what Jesus, as our high priest, did once for All time. So why are we wanting to find ways to earn what Jesus has finished? Why do we want to add to what Jesus has finished? Why do we not feel that that's adequate for our life? It's because we don't understand these three verses. That Jesus is culmination from Genesis 3.15, the seed that would be one who would crush the serpent's head, that it's Christ and Christ alone. We don't need any other revelation. We have the revelator, Jesus himself. And he has sat down at the right hand of God. That again is a picture uh, of honor uh, in Scripture.